I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. Welcome to Checkup's Ask Me Anything podcast. On this edition, our experts answer questions about the Israel-Hamas war. Ottawa says it now has a high degree of confidence that Israel did not strike the Al-Akhli hospital in Gaza City. Canada is announcing $50 million more. It will address the urgent needs of the most vulnerable civilians in this crisis. Video feeds of both sides of the Rafah crossing show what appear to be trucks leaving Egypt and entering Gaza. As we record this on Sunday, October 22nd, we're still waiting for the next steps in the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. The Israeli military says it will launch a ground assault on Gaza. Israel's defense minister told his troops to prepare to see Gaza, quote, from the inside. Still not clear when that will happen. In the meantime, a humanitarian disaster continues to unfold in Gaza. A second shipment of first aid supplies was delivered through the Egyptian border at Rafah today. But stories were emerging last week of doctors performing surgeries by the light of mobile phones and using vinegar to treat infections. The focus of our Ask Me Anything this week is the Israel-Hamas war. And we have two guests. Scott Clancy is a retired major general in the Canadian Armed Forces and the former director of operations for NORAD. John Allen is a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He served as Canada's ambassador to Israel from 2006 to 2010. Here are some highlights from the show. Scott and John, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, Ian. Thank you very much for having me. John, the Israeli military has made it clear from everything I've seen that they are going to go into Gaza. It's just a matter of when. Um, looking at it from the diplomatic uh, perspective, do you think Israel has been facing pressure, including perhaps from the United States and other allies, to delay this invasion? I think they have been uh, facing pressure. I think there's a question of 200-plus uh, hostages, uh, perhaps a third of them that are foreign, um, and I think there's a question of just um, the nature of the ground invasion. And I'm sure that uh, the United States and others are urging uh, Israel to be as pinpoint as possible to try and minimize the number of civilian casualties, uh, etc. So there's definitely some pressure there. And um, and uh, hopefully uh, Israel is taking that on board uh, and trying to figure out the best way to do this. Scott, last week on this program, I was asking you for military perspective on why Israel had not yet made an incursion into Gaza. Are you surprised it hasn't happened yet? Uh, maybe a little bit, in, but uh, really the same reasons that I'd stated last week, I think, are the same reasons that we have now. They need to prepare for deliberate offensive exactly along the lines of the, what John was talking about and the pressure. You want to be doing things so that you can delineate civilian and military targets. There's the issue of the hostages. I also think that 
providing some corridors for humanitarian aid is going to be important for this as well. And that's going to decrease the threat to the IDF as well. Uh, John, uh, as these civilian casualties grow in Gaza, what is it that other countries can say to Israel? Um, because, you know, for Israel, the, the attacks by Hamas were so atrocious. There is so much anger. There is the vow by Israel to destroy the Hamas leadership. So so what can the message be from Israel's allies in terms of, uh, I don't know, either changing their plan or slowing down their plan? Well, I think the messages can be twofold. On the one hand, um, understand, Israel, that you've had the sympathy of the world because of the horrors of the attack that took place. There's little sympathy for Hamas, and therefore try by being as careful as you can not to waste that sympathy by incurring the wrath certainly of the global south and the mid-east but of others uh, in uh, exposing uh, civilians it's a very difficult um, uh, task for the israelis but also i think uh, it behooves the israelis to try and take the time and figure out exactly where they want to go and what they want to do and what they're going to end up with uh, getting rid of the political and the military leaders of Hamas is one thing, and maybe that's why they're also taking some time. They're trying to figure out exactly where they are and how to get at them. But um, going going beyond that, what's the end game? Uh, what is going to happen afterwards? These are things that Israel should be thinking about, and I hope world leaders are talking to them about that. And and John, the second shipment of humanitarian aid, uh, I assume, but I'll ask you for your perspective, is this tied to the the diplomatic pressures on Israel? Oh, uh, I, I think Israel gets it. Um, imposing a human shield uh, was not a good idea. I understand not letting fuel in, a dual use could be used by Hamas. But uh, both diplomatically and from a humanity perspective, not allowing food uh, and water and medicines in was was not a good idea. And I hope it will flow uh, as fast as it can and as much as it can. Scott, Israel has been attacking Gaza from the air for days now. Just this past Friday, a district in northern Gaza was, was leveled. What's the strategy behind these attacks? I think the main strategy behind these attacks is to limit the amount of physical capabilities that Hamas can present to the Israeli Defense Forces as they prepare to uh, invade into Gaza. So basically, they're softening up the actual military targets that Hamas has in preparation for the ground assault, that they have ramped up those air assaults and artillery assaults in the last 24 hours indicates to me that a ground offensive would be coming sooner rather than later. But but this all speculation, obviously. Ahmed Shems is uh, calling us from Kitchener. Hi, Ahmed. Hello. Thank you for calling. What, what's your question? My question is, um, just considering um, how many civilian deaths tend to happen um, when Israel um, launches airstrikes against buildings, um, why a ground strike isn't just the first thing that they do, just because it makes sense that it would be more surgical and there perhaps would be a lot less collateral damage. So I'm just wondering, uh, particularly from the, the military expert, why a ground strike um, is not the thing that they do first rather than launch airstrikes that uh, seem to kill a, a lot of people and 
and get the uh, get the world upset. So I'm just yeah. curious as to why they don't just do a ground invasion first or, yeah, or only. Yeah, and stay on the line, Ahmed. I mean, I'll come back to you to see if you have a follow-up question. But um, but Scott Clancy, what, what's your answer? That, that that's a great question from Ahmed. Okay, so from a military perspective. It's going to be a lot less costly for the Israeli Defense Forces to surgically strike at a, a target from the air. Now, I think everybody knows and understands this, that it comes with higher collateral damage. Okay, uh, except, you know, for the Israeli Defense Forces, they're going into a population where, you know, more than 50% of the population in Gaza is below the age of 18. The vast majority of those have been rad- radicalized by Hamas. They're going to be facing, you know, threats at every single corner, being able to target and diminish those threats beforehand. They've given leaflet drops. They even call people in the buildings, you know, I, I Listen to a briefing by a senior Israeli defense, you know, official where they know the people who are living in those buildings. They call them and tell them to get out before they strike those buildings. Uh, that Hamas is using those buildings as military targets. You know, they lose their protection under the Geneva Conventions and the laws of armed conflict. And that's the rationale that the Israeli Defense Forces is using and why they strike those with air strikes first. Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of FrontBurner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear FrontBurner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Ahmed, do you have a follow-up question? Uh, yeah, um, I've just heard reports that even with the, I forget exactly what they're called officially when they, you know, let them know. Um, I've heard reports of people going to the south as, as um, wanted by the, the IDF in Israel and still getting hit. And I know how densely populated Gaza is. I'm just, I'm just wondering if there's perhaps a, an easier way, just given that people, like so many people still end up being killed if, and given that, I don't know if it was the defense minister or, or one of the generals saying that it's not about accuracy right now, it's about damage. I'm just wondering if perhaps things could be done a lot better. Uh, that's why I'm asking you, because I'm not an expert. Yeah. So what, no, what thank, you thank you, Ahmed. Uh, Scott? This is always going to be a very difficult question. And, and I, I, you know, I feel, you know, people who haven't worked in the military realm, you know, the difficulty of answering this. Israel is striking across the board inside of Gaza, all military targets that it can find where Hamas's leadership is at. It has not said that it won't strike targets in the south, even though it has told the population, to, you know, majority to move uh, out of the northern portions. It's focusing its attacks on the northern portion, but not ruling out where those targets arrive in the south. Now, from a Canadian perspective or an Occidental perspective, we will consider the collateral damage on each and every strike of whether that's worth the military uh, advantage that's gained. And those are the exact words out of uh, international humanitarian law. But whether or not we strike that still means whether we're willing to accept that level of collateral damage. And what you're seeing from the Israelis is they're willing to accept a significant amount of collateral damage. Now, here's the second thing. Collateral damage is being reported by Hamas. You know, we say the Palestinian Health Authorities, but they're controlled by Hamas. So what we don't know is how many actual soldiers of Hamas are killed versus civilians. 
Yeah, and uh, I guess two things. First of all, the fog of war, any war in any part of the country, any part of the world. And uh, we certainly saw that with uh, the explosion that happened um, just outside the hospital a few days ago. And your analysis on that, uh, Scott, was was bang on uh, early on on that. But And I'd also say to people who are listening, we have these two experts, one on military strategy and one on diplomacy, and their answers won't be what, or I think many times, won't be on what should happen, but what is likely happening or kind of the expert view on that. And so I, I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate that analysis and answer to those questions. Let's go to Stephanie Blackman, who is in Montreal. Hi, Stephanie. Yes, hello. Good evening. Uh, what's your question for our experts? Uh, yes, thank you. I wanted to ask, what is the best way to keep the hostages safe? Because... Uh, if Israel does not comply with the demands of these depraved psychopaths, obviously their lives are in serious danger. Now, could Canada do anything? Can other nations do something? What can we do? Yeah, Stephanie, thank you very much for the call. And, and uh, I feel like that's a good question to put to uh, to a former Canadian ambassador to, to Israel. John, what can Canada do? Well, Canada is going to be working with a lot of other nations, uh, obviously with the United States, with the other countries that have hostages there, dual nationals or pure Canadians. Um, but we're also going to be relying on the Qataris, uh, the Turks and the Egyptians who actually have relations, direct relations with Hamas. And uh, it's our understanding that it was the Qataris that were responsible for the release of the two Americans. And I think we're all hoping uh, that those lines of communication remain open and that um, the Qataris and others are trying to uh, explain to Hamas that um, uh, if if they if this can be explained to them that um, it's their people, the Palestinian people in the south, in the north, that are going to suffer um, if they continue to hold those hostages uh, and if they continue to fire fire rockets into Israel. But it's an extremely tough situation. I imagine for the political and military leadership of Hamas, this is their ultimate protection. And uh, we just all pray and hope um, that somehow these people can be released uh, uh, unharmed. And, and John, drawing on your past experience, and I don't know if you know anything about the present situation, and if you do, I'm not asking you about that because I don't want to endanger anything that's going on, but but drawing on your past experience, how, how does Canada even get a seat at the sort of proverbial table here as these delicate negotiations or discussions, maybe they're not negotiations, discussions are going on with Hamas in this life or death battle. How does Canada even get a voice in that or does it? We get a voice because we've got people on the ground. Uh, we've got um, a number of uh, Canadian dual nationals, uh, perhaps the most famous is Vivian Silver, who my wife and I knew very well while we were there, a peace activist, a woman that spent her whole life working for peace between Palestinians and Israelis who was captured and is being held hostage. So because we have people on the ground, because we have Canadian nationals that are also trying to get out, we get a... a place at the table, um, and we do what we can, um, but we're really working, um, as I said, with the other countries that have 
real influence. Um, we can make our our case known. We can hope for a, a humanitarian resolution that protects uh, the hostages. But it's the people on the ground, um, the Israelis, as I said, the Egyptians, Qataris, to some extent, the Turks, um, who can try and make a difference here, who can hopefully get a, more hostages released, the children, the women, uh, and the older people, and leave the soldiers there if that's the last game in town. Last night, fairly late, even Pacific time, we saw a statement by uh, the Canadian Armed Forces saying that it had reviewed the intelligence on the explosion outside the hospital, and it feels like it is highly unlikely, I think was the phrase, that uh, Israel was responsible for this. I was surprised to see that statement. I wonder why it came out late on a Saturday night and days after other countries like the United States had weighed in. Uh, From your perspective as a former senior officer, in the Canadian Armed Forces. What was your perspective on it? Yeah, so the timing of that announcement seems a little bit odd to me as well. I think that uh, there's uh, some political um, things at play there. I'm not sure that, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, as soon as the information was available to the you know, to the senior leadership that it was necessarily believed. And, and that's okay. I think that's why there's civilian control over top of the military. So, you know, if we're taking at face value what the IDF says, then maybe the, you know, political powers that be are saying, go back and find some sort of other proof that leads to, uh, you know, that recognition. But but let's be clear, the Israeli Defense Forces came out with, here's all the proof that we have that we did not do this. And Hamas just said, no, the bad guys did this. you know, to be clear, we had the balance of probabilities, you know, in in the first couple of hours after uh, that horrific uh, attack, which was an accident anyways. Like, I don't, I'm not, nobody's saying that, you know, the Islamic, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad actually meant to do that. It was a misfired rocket. And uh, just maybe in a minute, Scott, um, one of the things I, I was wondering about is what access to foreign intelligence would the Canadian Armed Forces have in a situation like this? So I'd say the number one access to foreign intelligence would be our connections with the Americans and the British through our Five Eyes community. And I think that that intelligence serving, which has has been fundamental to our ability to see threats into the future for many years and decades, uh, would be the foundation with which we would uh, share intelligence. And that's probably where uh, any additional proof came from. Hmm. be an interesting uh, series of meetings to be part of. Uh, John, uh, last comment from you. We have really only a minute left, but uh, as we hope that diplomacy um, has uh, a a positive impact between Israel and Hamas, uh, what guidance would you give us? What last comment would you make? Well, just on the last point, um, I would say that unfortunately the damage has already been done and most, if not all, of the Middle East still believes that Israel dropped the bomb that caused that. Uh, Secondly, um, I think what we want is this to end as quickly as possible with the least civilian damage as possible, and then we've got to move on to root causes. We've got to begin to deal with the substantive issues around how do we get to a Palestinian state, what has to be done in terms of uh, democracy elections in the West Bank, how do we govern Gaza after this, 
uh, in an interim basis. But let's move on. Let's try and ensure that we don't have a seventh and an eighth conflict. There, there are ways to avoid it, but it needs compromise and it needs hard work and new governments in both countries. Mm-hmm. John Allen is Canada's former ambassador to Israel and a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. And Scott Clancy is a retired major general in the Canadian Armed Forces, where he served, among other things, as a tactical helicopter pilot. Thanks to both of you, gentlemen. Thank you, Ian. That was a portion of Cross Country Checkup's AMA on the Israel-Hamas war with John Allen, a former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and Scott Clancy, a retired major general with the Canadian Armed Forces. If you'd like to listen to yesterday's full two-hour edition of Cross Country Checkup, you can stream the podcast on the CBC Listen app. And if you want to share comments or appear on the show, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Hanamansing. Thanks for listening. The next live edition of Checkup airs on CBC Radio, CBC News Network, and CBC News Explore next Sunday. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.